Psalm 63 this morning. Psalm 63. A well-known Christian author wrote these words. God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. And for many of us, those words ring very true. And for some of us, those words are quite convicting this morning. (laughs) And quite honestly, I'll speak for myself. I won't include you in this, but I think you would probably agree with me that I allow, at times I blame, and I even excuse my lack of devotion and worship to God because of the trials and adversity in my life. That ever happened to any of you? The trials and adversity in my life, my, my big problems in my really big world, <laughs> they, I, use, I allow those to just slack. And I don't love God like I should. And the reality of life is, and, and we're seeing it bear out in front of us all around, the reality of life is we're going to face trial and adversity. Is that not? We're going to face trial and adversity. Um, Job put it this way, man's born for trouble as what? The sparks fly up. So we're going to face it. And it's our tendency as human beings, now I'm going to include you with me in this. You're all in this with me. It's our tendency to lazily recoil from adversity and trial and become inwardly focused. Anybody else like that? That's, that's a nice way of saying that we all kind of develop a little bit of a woe is me attitude. Okay? In the world that we live in, it's really easy. And in the world of social media, it's even easier. We can say, woe is me, and then we can invite all these other people who we think really care about us to, to be woeful for us too. And yet, here's the thing. That's anything, anything but what Jesus told us that we're to have And that is we're supposed to have life and life more abundantly. Now, I didn't say life happy all the time. I said abundant life. Jesus promised trial. He promised test. But he also promised abundant life. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And the psalm that I'm taking us to this morning, Psalm 63, I think we see this. We see this. But, but I do want to just kind of help to set the, the, the idea for this even further. Because one of the marks for the tr- follower of Jesus, the true follower of Jesus, one of the identifying marks for the true follower of Jesus, Jesus said himself that they will endure to the end. But, but let's be honest. How many of us in this room at times feel like that's all we're doing is just enduring? Right? Just hanging on, man. Just hanging on. I'm just enduring. It's like Groundhog Day over and over and over again. I go to bed feeling like I've just hung on to the end of the rope, and I wake up feeling like I'm right on the end of that rope again, right? I think Jesus knew that was going to happen because he tells us in Matthew chapter 24, one of the marks of the end times is that many will fall away, that lawlessness will be increased, and that the love of many will grow cold. Boy, are we living that right now. We are living that right now. Lawlessness has increased, and the love of many, that's us, has grown cold. And yet, I can pick up my Bible and go to that really famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 and find these words. Love never fails. 
And sometimes that warms my heart, and other times I walk away feeling totally defeated by that. I find myself drifting. I find myself sometimes aimlessly floating along with the current of life. And, and that current carries me farther and farther from where I need to be, which is the throne of God. Have you figured that out? <laughs> that, that the current of life carries you farther and farther away from where you need to be, friend. You need to be at the throne of God. And so this morning we come to Psalm 63. And, and when you come to the Psalms, there, there's a select group of Psalms that, that, are, that are geographic Psalms. And that, that even in the heading, we get a clue as to what's going on here. So this morning, look at your Bible, and, and before you even get to verse 1, look at the heading on this psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Okay? Church, look up here. Is it ever good to be in the wilderness? When we're talking biblically here, is it ever good to be in the wilderness? Was the wilderness a happy place for the children of Israel? No. And David is in the wilderness, and we have to, even before we begin to unpack this psalm, we have to ask ourselves, what do we know about David's life? When could this possibly be referring to? And this could be referring to two instances, and I'm going to make a case for one this morning. But there are two times that we know that David has been forced to go out into the wilderness. One before he was king. When, when he was on the run from Saul, remember that? David had to go on the run from Saul, and he ended up in the wilderness, but there's a second time when he is king, and I believe that this is the one it's referring to because if you just skip down to verse 11, David's referring to himself kind of like in the first person. He says this, but the king. He's not talking about King Jesus. He's talking about himself here, the king. David's referring to himself as the king, and there was a time when David was king that he was forced to leave, to leave his throne, and he was forced to be on the run in or out of Jerusalem and, and away and, and out in the wilderness. And that was when his son Absalom sought for his life. Now think that through for a second, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of that this morning. But, but David's son forced him away from the place that he was called to serve. Anybody agree that's a tough situation? Anybody agree that's a trial? Anybody agree that that's a test? Anybody agree that that might cause you to get into a spiritual kind of depression and just basically say, you know what, God, I'm going to mail it in here for a while? Let me give you a little background to this. A wilderness is an odd place for a king to be. I believe that this psalm is referring to the time when he's on the run from Absalom, as I said. Absalom is David's son who, who had been exiled from the kingdom. You say, well, why was Absalom exiled? Well, if you haven't read the Old Testament, you will find that the Old Testament at times is very R-rated. Right? It, it's pretty graphic. And, and, and this is one of those graphic stories. We find it in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, what we find out is that Absalom has been exiled because he murdered his half-brother, Amnon, because Amnon had raped his sister, Tamar. Go ahead and say it with me. That's just gross. <laughs> just get it out there in the open, right? Okay? Okay? And God gives us the unvarnished truth, doesn't he? So Absalom has been exiled. And imagine being the father over this tribe. Okay? David's in a pretty low place to begin with. But now, now, 
Absalom starts to work his way back into favor with his father. He's trying to get back in the inner circle. And so in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel, we find that Absalom returns. He returns to Jerusalem, and David goes two whole years with, with Absalom being in the same town as he's in. He goes two whole years, and he just keeps him shut out. Okay? Then... In chapter 15, he works this arrangement to get, to get in front of his father, and, and they begin to mend the relationship back together. But unknowingly to David, the whole time, Absalom's working behind the scenes against David. And what we find out is, is that it's recorded for us there in 2 Samuel that Absalom literally goes to the gate of Jerusalem, the place where they, where they do all the legal matters and all that. And he's sitting there at the gate. And, and what he's doing is he's conspiring with the people and he's making favor with the people. David's gone through a really tough time. He's probably not out in the public like he needs to be. And Absalom is going to be that really nice, friendly, hey, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you kind of guy. That's what he's doing. And the people like that. And over time, he says, you know what? I would make a better king than, than my dad would. Maybe you should support me for king. And he starts this grassroots campaign. And before you know it, he's got a following, and he puts David on the run. He puts David on the run. He's won the people over. And, and for a second, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. Here you have a son who's a murderer. You're grieving the loss of another son. You have a daughter who's been raped by one of your sons, and now you've lost your throne. All in the span of about three years. All in the span of about three years. And he pens this psalm. And, and this psalm is so rich with truth. And, and as I kept reading through this psalm, I had to go back into 2 Samuel and keep reading this history and thinking through, this guy is writing from some horrible experiences here. Experiences that I don't think many of us can relate to. And, and he writes from these experiences, and, and he makes some incredible statements. There's a couple ways you can look at this psalm. For instance, Verses 1 through 5 deal with David's present situation. Verses 6 through 8 deal with, with David's past. And verses 9 through 11 deal with David's future here. But I'm going to choose to break them down a different way this morning as we look at them. But first, I want to read this psalm together with you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so, Father, this morning, speak to our hearts. 
I pray that when we leave here this morning, we would have a greater appreciation for your greatness so that no matter what the test, no matter what the trial, no matter what the situation in our life, we could say like David, I will bless you. I will praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot of different ways we could look at this psalm, but, but to me, in my little puny mind, what makes the most sense is there's two stanzas of a song here, and they follow the same pattern. Verses 1 through 5 would, would make up the first stanza, and verses 6 through 11 would make up the second. And each, in each one of those two stanzas, you see three points that are repeated. And if you're taking notes, this will help you to organize it. First, you'll see, you'll see David's desire for God expressed. Secondly, then, you'll see a view of God's work and his attributes. And then thirdly, you'll see a response in praise and worship in both of these, in both of these little stanzas of this song and poem that David's written. So let's begin. Verse 1, you see David's desire for God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My soul, or my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As you begin this, as you see David's desire for God, David makes a really powerful statement. It's a statement that we sang this morning when we sang Step by Step. And, and it is a very powerful statement. And the statement is this. You are my God. Look up here this morning. If you are the blood-bought child of God this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is your reality this morning, that Jehovah Almighty is your God. In fact, say it with me if it's true. He's my God. Do you realize that you've said something that makes the very foundations of hell shake this morning? He's my God. He's not just God. He's my God. He, he's in my corner. He's the one that I serve. He's the one. He's the one who's going to defend me. He's the one who's got this all under control. And this morning... And, and, and when you're going through trials and tests, the most important thing that you need to keep in your mind is not the test or the trial or even the solution. The most important thing that you and I need to know in any test or trial is, is that God is your God. Because if you don't know that, tests and trials will be terrible. They will eat you up. They will crush you. I so appreciate Jimmy being here this morning because when, when Jimmy talks about this ministry that, that he firmly believes in his heart that is the answer, he's right because, it, because the only way you can get through addiction and that is if, if he's your God. Because if he's not your God, you're not getting through it. And so this realization leads David into a sincere, desperate seeking of God. Let me put it to you this way. When you understand that God is your God, there's only one thing that's going to satisfy your soul, and that's Him and Him alone. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. 
You're not going to get satisfaction from relationships. You're not going to get satisfaction from, from your job. You're not going to get satisfaction from how much money is in the bank. When you are in a tough situation and you have to realize that God is your God, the only thing that's going to satisfy you is the fact that He truly is your God. And notice how desperate He is. He uses this language. It's kind of similar to the language of Psalm 42, which we've already covered this summer. But he, but he evokes this, this thirst language there in verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. And the picture here is, is that he is going so hard after God, even though he has very little strength in and of himself, he is going to go so far after God that he is going to faint trying to get there. When was the last time you exerted all your effort in seeking after God? I can, I can tell you how many times I exert all my effort trying to solve problems in my own strength. Anybody else with me on that? I will work myself to the bone, and I will rattle my mind, and I will create all this problem and emotional turmoil for myself because I'm trying to seek an effort and, and, and a solution for myself as opposed to when was the last time I really exhausted myself just seeking God? to the point of fainting. And, and you get the sense that the more that he feels weak, the more that he realizes he needs to get there. And so you have this desperate desire for God, which leads them, secondly then, into this view of God that he has, this view of God and his attributes. Last week we talked about your view of God and, and how we need a more robust real view of who God is, and this psalm bears this out. So, so look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says, so, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Beholding your power and your glory. The first thing that David looks at with this God is, is this glorious might. But notice the place that he goes to look for him. The place is key here. Your Bible says Sanctuary. Your Bible says sanctuary. Turn over maybe a page in your Bible to Psalm 60 and verse 6. <laughs> it says, in your sanctuary where your power and your glory are. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, what was in the very heart of that tabernacle and temple? What was it? It was a place we call the Holy of Holies, right? How did they know God was in there? There was, he's manifested himself in there by a cloud, did he not? He, he, he literally filled that room with his glory. So I had you turn to Psalm 60 and verse 6. Just catch the first phrase. God has spoken in his what? You see, when you go to the place where God is... <laughs> In David, David's case, it's going to the sanctuary. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. You will, you will find that when you go to where God is, he will speak to you out of his holiness. And so David goes to the right place. What places do you go to when you're in trial and test? Where do you go to? The sanctuary, don't make the mistake of saying the sanctuary is just coming to church. This is... I resist even calling this room the sanctuary. It's just an auditorium. You yourself are the sanctuary where God resides. You go to the place where God resides. You go to the throne where he is. And where is it that you meet with God? That's where I meet with God is in his word. This is where he speaks to me. 
It's the only place he speaks to me is through his word. And so here, he, we go to God in the word and prayer, and it's the place where God speaks. And, and, and how desperate are we to get to that place? In trial and test, many times the last thing we think to pick up is the word of God, though, isn't it? And notice what he finds there. He finds his power and glory. He finds that his holiness is unmatched. And, and you get this view, you get this idea of the Isaiah 6 view of God. Remember the Isaiah 6 view of God, where, where, where Isaiah gets this miraculous opportunity to see God on the throne in heaven. And he says that his, that his veil, or his, his train fills the whole room. And, and, and at the end of that whole thing, what is Isaiah's response? It's, woe is me. Woe is me. Can we just be painfully honest with one another? In trial and test, what is the one thing we really want more than anything as human beings? What do we want? How many of you are with me? I just want comfort. I want it to go away. I, I, I want some relief. You know what God gives us if we'll take it? A big view of who he is that leaves us feeling, woe is me. He's like, well, that's just going to make me feel worse. No. When you can come to the point in the presence of God and say, woe is me, you understand how great he is. And that's what we need, desperately. We don't need somebody to pat us on the back and say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You know what? It may not be all right here on earth, but God is still on his throne. And the last thing we need is people to lie to us and tell us everything's going to be fine. We need a big view of who God is. We need to see him in his holiness. We need to be left with, woe is me. Because that prepares us then to see what David sees in verse 3. See, God just doesn't leave us there saying, woe is me. He, he also, when you go and you meet with God, you find out that his steadfast love is better than life. God isn't just some cold, unfeeling, holy God who has no care for his creation. He is a God who loves his creation. And he's full of faithful love. This, this love here is a covenant love. David's talking specifically about a covenant love, and it's a love that's guaranteed by God keeping up his end of the bargain, not us keeping our end of the bargain. Because if we're going to have a covenant love with God, it better not be dependent on us loving him. It better be dependent on him choosing to love us. Would you agree with me? And he says this, it is better than life. It's better than life. And notice, David is saying this as he's on the run for his life. He says, your love is better than even my life. Absalom can take my life. He can absolutely kill me. He's already killed me with the way, he's already probably killed in his heart. Parents, you understand this, right? He's probably already dead in many ways because of what Absalom has done. He's like, Absalom can take my life. I still have God's faithful love which leads to the response. You see it there at the end of verse three and in verses four and five. Again, put yourself in the mind of David. He's got a son who has murdered another son because that son raped his daughter. He no longer has the comforts of, of his life in Jerusalem where he sat on the throne. 
He, the people that he once led who loved him are now saying, we love you, Absalom, we hate David. And he is out in the wilderness running for his life, and this is his response. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is a determined response in the face, right in the face of circumstance. I'm going to praise you, God. The circumstances aren't telling me to praise you, but because of who you are and my response to that, I'm going to praise you. And notice that posture is so important in praise. Posture, physical posture is so important. Do you see it there in verse 4? I'm going to ask you to do something that many of you don't think you're allowed to do in a Baptist church. You ready for it? You ready for it? What's he tell you to do in verse 4? Let me see if you can do it. You guys are capable of it. You really can do it. How many of you can do the one-hand thing? How many of you can do the two-hand thing? How many of you can do the little side one? Can't get it quite up there. Posture is really important, and this isn't just about an outward show so that people see me raising my hands. Do you, do you understand what David's doing here? Let me help you to understand what he's doing here. There's two things that he's communicating. By raising hands, he's lifting something to God. Okay, help, just, just, in fact, just do it with me. I know this, thing, this is corny, but just do it with me. You think about the one thing right now that's troubling you the most in your mind. You got it? You got it? Take it and put it in your hands. And now take your hands up to God. What have you done? What have you done? You're giving it to him. What do we sometimes do, though? Right? What happens when you give it to him? You're giving it to somebody who knows the situation even better than you do, right? You're giving it to somebody who has promised that he's going to work all things together for your good. You're giving it to somebody who, who is all-wise and all-knowing, and what you're saying is, if I keep it, I'm going to make a mess of it, but I know I can trust you with it. Are we not? That's one thing you're communicating. Now, Take a look at your hands and look at your heart. And there's some things missing. Any of you got some things missing in your heart? Take your empty hands and lift them up to God. What are you communicating? What are you communicating? You're communicating, I don't have it and I need it. And who are you communicating that to? The one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You're, you're communicating that to the one who created this world. You're creating that to the one. You're, you're, you're saying that to the one who knows you and knows your every need. Do you see the beauty in this? This is not just David like, I'm feeling a little charismatic because we're singing a Chris Tomlin song. I'm going to lift my hands. No. 
This is posture before God. And, and I would encourage you, don't worry what the rest of the room thinks. If God moves your heart in worship, it's okay to lift your hands, church. If when someone's up here leading us in prayer, and you're feeling that prayer, and you're like, you know what, God, that's me. I know we're Baptists. We're not allowed to do that. But you know one of the reasons we don't lift our hands? Because we're just not thirsty enough. You get thirsty enough, you get desperate enough, you'll reach for something, won't you? You ever get so tired that, and you've got water like on your nightstand and you're like, I'm too tired to reach to get it? And then you wake up a half hour later like, I'm really thirsty. You know you're really thirsty when you actually move to get the water, right? You know you're really desperate when you actually take your hands to God. And notice what David's expectation is in verse 5. Do you, see, do you see the expectation here? This is what he expects from God. And, and this isn't because, okay, God, I raised my hands. you got to do this. This is because David knows, because David has experienced this with God. David has a history with God where God has been faithful over and over. Remember steadfast love there in verse 3? He's experienced this. And so in verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied. And here's the reality. Follower of Jesus, you lift your hands to him. He will never turn you away. He will satisfy you every time may not be what you want, but it will satisfy you. And, and do you get the juxtaposition as he's on the run? I'm guessing he's not. He probably didn't get to bring the palace chef with him. He's probably eating like the cowboys, you know, like cowboy beans. That gets old really quick. And he's like, my, my soul's going to be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth is going to praise you. So that's the first stanza. Boy, I could keep going. But again, now in verses 6 through 8, again, the, the first part of this stanza, the second stanza is the same as the, as the first one. There's this desire for God communicated. Look at it in verses 6 through 8. When I remember you upon my bed, is there ever a more lonely time than in the middle of the night whenever your heart is broken and there's just no one to talk to? He says, I remember you on my bed. And I meditate upon you in the watches of the night. You know, the loneliness of night is an interesting thing. You know, in the loneliness of night, there's no one to text your problems to. Don't text them to me. That will make me mad. <laughs> now, if you're in a real problem, you better, you better let me know. There's no one on social media to affirm you in the middle of the night. And if they are, they're just as wacko as you are. <laughs> Did you get my commentary there? Sorry. Where do you turn to in the middle of the night? Who do you know the one person that's going to be awake and listening for you? Where do you go? You may not even be able to wake up your wife. You know who you can wake up because he's never sleeping? It's God in heaven. And so David is like, I got no one to hear me, but I know this, even in the middle of the night. Verse 7, you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. There's two key words in verse 6. If you mark in your Bible, these are words that you should circle. Remember and meditate. Remember and meditate. 
One of the reasons we struggle so much for trials is this. We're forgetters, and we don't remember how faithful God has been. And that's why God in his word has to tell us, hey, dummies, remember. And then not just remember, but meditate. Meditate on you. Not me- you, know what, you know what I want to meditate on when it's the middle of the night and I'm in trouble? I want to meditate on all the people who have been unfair to me. I want to meditate on all the injustices that have happened to me. I want to meditate on how poor, woeful, and sad my life is right now. And yet God says, don't focus on that. Meditate on me. You, you want to encourage yourself in the middle of the night? Start naming the attributes of God, your God. And what this does is it creates even a greater dependence. Do you see it there in verse 8? My soul clings. My soul clings to you. Clinging isn't a bad thing if you're clinging to the right person. Clinging isn't a bad thing if you're clinging to the almighty God of heaven, who's your God. And so we have this deep desire for God, and then he focuses on an attribute of God that, quite honestly, might seem like, well, this just seems mean and vindictive, but he focuses on God's judgment. This is the attribute he focuses on in verses 9 and 10. And and, and catch the bitter sweetness of this. Who is he referring to in verses 9 and 10? What person is he talking about that's going to get what he is saying here? Who's getting the end of it? Who's getting this? His son. And so lest you think, that, that David is just like joyfully saying, God's going to damn you to hell. He's talking about his son. And here's what he says. Because God is faithful, because God has been my help, because I'm God's anointed king, and I know it, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. That's a euphemistic way of saying they're going to die. Do you realize that David prophesied Absalom's death here? He goes on. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. If you read the account of the death of Absalom, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. And here's the thing. And I can say this. And it's hard, but it's true. Even the people that misuse you here on this earth and get away with it, that ever happened to you? You ever been abused by somebody and they seem to get away with it? And they, they don't have to pay the price, even though they've, they've done evil? If you're the child of God, here's the reality for you. They may not get judged correctly by man, <laughs> but they will get judged correctly by God. And that's something we got to remember. Man isn't always going to get it right. But here's the thing. God always gets it right. God's justice will not be mocked. He, he is a just God. He is a holy God. Sin will be judged. Those that seemingly are getting away with wrong right now, they will be punished. 
And so we have to resist the urge to do the punishing. God's going to do it. Which then leads to David's praise. And it's a bittersweet praise because he's talking about his son. Again, I remind you of that. In verse, 12, or verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David's saying this. Those who swear by him, those who are loyal to him. If you're loyal to your father, guess what? In the end, he will vindicate you. And here's one thing I know. Only God himself can stop the lie of the enemy. You and I can confront a lie. We can point out a lie. We can't stop a lie. But God can stop a lie when he wants to stop a lie. Can he not? Because he has the power of life. And there's no better way to stop a lie than to just take a life of the liar. And so this morning, tests and trials are real. But I am convinced that God puts them in our path so that our devotion to him will grow. That our devotion to him will grow. And it all begins with that first phrase in the psalm. In fact, let's just say it together. Oh God, you are my God. It all begins there. If, if you can't say that truthfully, then, then you have no reason to praise. In fact, you should be afraid, very, very afraid. But if that is your reality, oh God, you are my God, there is no test that's too big for him. There's no trial that he can't get you through. And you have every reason to seek him. And David gives us a great lesson here in this psalm. You want a take-home point? Here's a great take-home point for you. I think one of the biggest lessons of this psalm is after you realize that God is your God, secondly, the big lesson that you have to learn is this, that I have to learn is this. In the middle of trial and adversity, I need to stop looking at, at all of me and all the circumstances around me, and I need to focus on him and his attributes. Maybe along with the prayer journal that we all know that we should keep and we guiltily don't keep, maybe we should keep a list of God's attributes as well. So that when we're going through trial, we can just look, hey, my God's a merciful God. My God's a gracious God. My God's omnipotent. He's all powerful. My God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and I can't be everywhere. He knows everything that's going on. And that's, that's the kind of thing we need to rehearse to ourselves. So friend, be encouraged. He is your God. He is your God. And you have every reason to praise him. You have every reason. You have every reason to worship him. You have every reason to take your hands to him. Whether you got something to give him that you don't want back or you need something back from him, take your hands to him. Father, Thank you for this great reminder from this short psalm. And God, I'm reminded that the way the story with Absalom and David ends is, is kind of bittersweet. But I all know this, that you are faithful and that you were faithful to David. 
And so, we are grateful that you are the one that even as we sang earlier, you are the one who holds us fast. May we rest in that as we leave here now. In Christ's name, amen. You are dismissed.